We have been going through uh, a series as a church for the last six weeks, actually, and we are in the penultimate week now. We, um, obviously, we normally, on a Sunday morning, we study God's Word, but at the moment, we're going through this book by Peter Scazzaro, The Emotionally Healthy Church, and um, I want to start by just saying, well done, church. This, the things that we've been covering over the last six weeks have not been easy. Okay, he's actually dealing with some very, very tough things. And um, we've heard some great feedback, and we've heard some feedback that has been challenging. And um, we know that this series has been good, but we know it does throw some challenges in there. So we, um, we've got two weeks to go. This week, if I'm honest, has been a challenge for me. Um, it's still a good thing to look at, what we're looking at today. And actually, as we talked about going out onto the streets and loving people... Really, this week is all about that. The title is "Make Incarnation Your Model for Loving Well." Um, so we know the different things that we've looked at. We've looked at first um, looking beneath the surface. This was the first week of this idea of the iceberg and the fact that there's only ten percent shown, ninety percent under the surface, and often we only show other people that ten percent. And actually what's going on in our lives is in that 90%. We need to try and understand ourselves by looking beneath the surface. We've looked at breaking the power of the past, trying to understand our families, our histories, why we behave the way we behave, how actually some of the, um, the way our parents, our grandparents have done things have shaped the way we do things, how cultural traditions have affected the way that we handle situations. We've looked at living in brokenness and vulnerability. We looked at the Apostle Paul as he talked about how actually it was in his weakness that God made him strong. He had thorn in the flesh that actually was a problem and yet he wanted it to be taken away and yet he said that God used it and kept it there so that he wouldn't rely on his own strength. He had to rely on God. So we looked at that issue of brokenness and vulnerability We've looked at the gift of limits, of being able to say no, of knowing actually what God's given us. You know, not trying to be someone that we're not, not trying to do everything, not just being there because we have to, but actually being there because we want to and using that gift of limits well. And then last week, Matt was looking at embracing grieving and loss in our lives. And we looked at obviously how we handle that and how we actually need to delve into that and not just push it all down into the surface and leave it. And... Um, as I said, this week it's Make Incarnation Your Model for Living Well, which is a difficult title. It's a massive title. You think, what, what? It's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, but we're going to look at what he's talking about here. So I was just looking at some stats online. We are in a society where loneliness is increasing. And um, I was looking at the Beaumont Report 2013. It said 63% of adults aged 52 or over report feeling lonely some of the time or often, 63%. Um, there was a research commissioned by Relate and Relationships Scotland in 2014. It says 42% of those polled said that they did not count any of the colleagues at work as friends. It said 1 in 10 said they did not have a single close friend. And um, essentially it's 19% said that in the two weeks preceding the survey... They had never or rarely felt loved. 19% of that entire survey, I think it was 4.7 million, said they had never or rarely felt loved. 
And I want to say we live in a world that is growing in number rapidly and significantly. It's also growing in technology and social media and um, communication. And yet, it's growing in loneliness. Our planet is becoming lonelier and lonelier as time goes on. We know the stats, depression, suicide, loneliness. There are epidemic levels. And... As the church, we represent a community that the world can approach without fear of judgment or condemnation. They need to be able to approach and know the love of the church. Our world, our planet, is hurting. Even the UK, as we've seen, the hurt and the pain over some of the recent situations that have gone on, there's huge pain and church. And we are called to love the world well. We're called to love each other well. In fact, we know, because we've spoken about this many times as part of our vision here, loving God, loving one another, loving Liverpool, and loving the nations. That's what we're called to do, church. And we've spoken about this because it's our vision, because it's what we're being called to do. We've actually spoken about it many times. And yet here in this book, it's what Peter Schizero is starting to tackle. And he actually gets very, very practical on how we love the world well. And he starts to look at some identifiable techniques that we can choose to love well. And he suggests that the five topics that I've just mentioned beforehand, all those things that we've covered beforehand, preceding this one, if we aren't growing in these areas, then we're actually going to really struggle to grow in this area. If we haven't been able to get to grips with some of those, we're going to struggle with this area. And, you know, loving well, we know this word love, don't we? It's banded around all the time. And yet it's a, it appears simple to understand. And yet actually in reality, it's difficult, really difficult of outworking loving people. Um, I know Tor read out 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read it out again. So just thought as we start to look at what does it mean to love the world well, we need to come back to looking at God who is love. Okay? He is love. And we have a great description here in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, what love is. It says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never, it never fails. Do you know, many of us are very familiar with these verses, aren't we? Um, as Tor mentioned, it's, it's, it's actually read at many, many marriages, okay, Mar- marriage ceremonies. And At these ceremonies, we know there are lots of non-Christians, and so they're probably actually familiar with this passage. But as I thought about, how does the non-Christian hear this? What do they think? And if I'm totally honest, and if we're honest as the church, they hear this description of love. And I think if they were to describe the church, what they've experienced of it, I very much doubt that this is how they would describe the church. That's sad, isn't it? I think there's often a clear disconnect 
between the love that we're called to live out today and the way that people receive that love from the church. And as I said, this title, it puts me off, if I'm totally honest, just because of the long words that are used in it. Don't let it put you off. Let's try and understand what he's trying to say here. Essentially, this is about loving others. And as, I, as we've read out 1 Corinthians, as helpful. On the weekend away, I gave this quote about when we start to talk about love. It's actually a massive, massive topic that we can't quite get our heads around fully. And I love this quote. He said, trying to, trying to describe love is like trying to rugby tackle a snooker table. You can give it your best shot, but ultimately it's far too big to get your arms around. And so I just want to put that premise out there before, that caveat. When we're talking about love, it's so vast. We're going to touch on a glimpse of it, okay? Um, and 1 Corinthians 13 helpfully gives us the essence of a description of love. But I think the problem actually comes when we... Not in defining love. We have so much stuff out there in the Bible that helps us to define it, but in outworking it, in modeling it as a church. And so that's what Peter Sixera is addressing here. He looks at a model to help us as the church to work out love. And he starts with a central piece of doctrine for us as the church. This is key to us. He looks at Jesus, God. He laid aside all his majesty and authority, and he came down to earth as a human, as a baby. We know it from, one John, from John 1, 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. He made his dwelling amongst us. I, I, I love the uh, message version. It says, He moved into the neighborhoods. That's what God did. He moved into the neighborhood. He came and he entered our world. He literally put on flesh and came to earth. And yet we know that he fully remained God. And this is one of those remarkable truths that I'm not going to try and unpack today because theologians before me have tried to unpack this and it is a vast topic. But what we do know is this. Jesus was both fully human and yet fully God. He wasn't half and half. This wasn't, he must be a mix. He was both fully human and fully God. And... um, we know, we know he was perfect, he was spotless, we know he never sinned, we know he performed great miracles and forgave sins. He himself forgave the sins of people. He spoke directly with God, his father, and he knew that, he knew the will of his father. So he knew when to pray for someone and when not to. He knew when someone was going to be healed and when not to. And today's topic is based, you can see this word incarnation, it's based around ourselves and the idea and the concept of us incarnating ourselves, putting ourselves into other people's worlds as Jesus did. And, um, you know, Jesus came and he, he literally put on skin. He put on flesh. But he still has flesh on planet Earth. You know that, don't you? That's me and you, the church. We are his flesh on Earth. And... Um, there is something today that Peter Scazzaro wants to address to get us to step into other people's shoes. And um, he helps us to try and understand this with a story from Martin Luther King Jr., who in 1963, he arrived in Alabama um, to lead a peaceful prote- uh, protest against, obviously we know at that time, total racial injustice. 
And the city sheriff at the last minute managed to secure a court injunction against this protest, making this march totally illegal. Martin Luther decided still to carry out the march that he'd set forward to do. And of course, he was arrested straight away. He was put in jail. And whilst he was in jail, the next day, the paper arrives. And he's given this copy of the paper. And there's a letter inside addressed to him from eight church leaders and a rabbi. Sounds like there's a joke in there somewhere, doesn't there? But, but there's not. And they basically write this letter to him, arguing that he should have been more patient. And Martin Luther, on the back of this, whilst in jail, writes a response titled, From Birmingham Jail. I just want to read the response that he writes to these church leaders uh, and this rabbi and to the world. And he says this, I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television, and you see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that fun town is closed to coloured children, and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people. When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you're humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white men and coloreds. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are. And when your wife and mother are never given the respected title, Mrs. When you're harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Do you know the church leader's response and the rabbi, it was a very quick response that they had to his action. And it's a prime example actually of how not to incarnate well. There was no attempt to try and understand or put themselves into the life of what it was like to be a black American at that time in history. And you know, he certainly, I'm sure, did not feel understood or loved by the church in this situation. I want to say, unfortunately, this isn't something that's unusual, even in our society today. I think the church, if we're totally honest, has a reputation for being hypercritical, very vocal on its stances. It has a reputation for being very defensive and judgmental, doesn't it, if we're honest? And Peter Scazzaro gets very practical for us as the church in this area on how can we learn to love well? And he suggests, he picks up on one area for us as the church. He thinks there's one key in learning to love well. And he says it's about listening. 
Listening is the key. David Ausberger says this. He says, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Being loved is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. Are you hearing that? People will feel loved when we listen to them. Famous theologian, theologian ben, Dietrich Bahnhofer says, just as love to God begins with listening to his words, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. So this concept's not a new concept, okay? It's a concept theologians have said for centuries. Actually, listening is key. And I have to be honest, as I thought about, what is it? What is this thing that's going to help the church to really love well? My first instinct was not, would not have been about listening. And yet there's some real truth here in what he's saying. And when I think about it, I think, you know, people around the planet are paying psychologists and sociologists hundreds and thousands of pounds to listen to them. To enter their world for just an hour. And the problem with the church, if we're honest, is that actually we're not good listeners. I think by nature, actually, we as a, genera- as a, as a human race are generally not good listeners. And we can quite often be physically present in situations, hearing somebody speak, and yet not be fully listening or present. Yeah. You listen to the preach? Yeah. It happens all the time, if I'm honest, to me as a dad. You know, there I am working in the office, I come, got the kids running around trying to engage with me, and I haven't quite got myself into their zone. I'm there, I'm present, and yet I'm not actually listening. My wife can back that up on many occasions, I'm sure. And the problem is, we are distracted. I'm distracted by my own thoughts, what I've been doing, what I've been thinking about, what's coming up next as I plan my schedule. Distracted by Facebook and social media and the football results and who's doing well in the fantasy football league or whatever it is for you. Our society, we are bombarded with things that are vying for our attention. And honestly, I think I look back 10 years as I was, as I was <laughs> just looking at myself now and I look back 10 years ago, I have to be honest, I've, I've I've got worse in this area. I am less good of a listener now than I was 10 years ago. And I started to look at, what is that? Is that all down to the things that are vying for my attention, that I've allowed to come in and take hold of that? So there's lots to learn here for us as a church. And I'm going to read you out a list here. We know by now, don't we, that Peter Scazzaro loves his lists. And these lists are never easy or comfortable. I'll read them out, and then I'll send them out so you can just reflect on them. But he has this list. He says, he says first, like many others, I was often too busy contradicting. This is when he's listening to people. Often too busy contradicting, correcting, judging, or rebutting to really understand what other people meant or were feeling, especially if I was rushed or under stress. And so here is 15 little statements to help you to understand how are you doing in this area of listening? So I'm just going to read them out, just reflect on them, see what you think. Number one, I make a great 
effort to enter other people's experiences of life. Number two, I do not presume to know what the other person is trying to communicate. Three, my close friends would say I listen more than I speak. Four, when people are angry with me, I'm able to listen to their side without getting upset. Five, people share freely with me because they know I listen well. Six, I listen not only to what people say, but also for their non-verbal cues, body language, tone of voice, and the like. Seven, I give people my undivided attention when they're talking to me. Eight, I'm able to reflect back and validate another person's feelings with empathy. Nine, I'm aware of my primary defensive mechanisms when I'm under stress, such as placating, blaming, problem-solving, Uh, problem-solving prematurely, or becoming distracted. Ten, I'm aware of how the family in which I was raised has influenced my present listening style. It's one for me. Growing up in a big family, if you wanted to be heard, you voice your opinion. Otherwise, you won't be heard. Eleven, I ask for clarification, not something another person is saying, rather than attempt to fill in the blanks. Twelve, I never assume something, especially negative, unless it is clearly stated by the person speaking. Thirteen, I ask questions when listening, rather than mind-read or make assumptions. Fourteen, I don't interrupt or listen for openings to get my point across when another is speaking. And fifteen, I'm aware when I'm listening of my own personal hot buttons that cause me to get angry, upset, fearful, or nervous. Do you know, I'm sure, just like me, many of those things will stand out to you that you think, I could be doing far better in those areas. And yes, I'm like that. And um, the thing about listening is I think you can learn. It is one of those things we can learn how to become better at listening, which is what this is trying to do here. And um, Peter Schizero would say, actually, this very point for his church as he spoke about listening, had more impact on his church culture than any other thing that he covered. This was the biggest thing as they brought in a culture of listening, of listening well, of learning to love through listening. It changed the culture of the church dramatically. And um, the consequences can be vast for us. It can totally change how we feel valued, how we feel loved. And so he starts, and we're just going to go through some of these, he starts by looking at reflective listening, this term reflective listening, which I'm sure many of you have heard about. But he tells a story about his marriage, how this changed dramatically his marriage. And um, let me just grab this area here. He talks about how reflecting had this big impact. A reflective listening is simple, he says. One person has the floor, speaking a few sentences at a time. You don't go on and on, and then the listener repeats back to him or her exactly what has just been said. The person listening attempts to enter into the world of the person speaking, laying aside questions, agendas, defences, and simply seeks to understand the other person's experience. He says, as we learned this on one level, it appeared robotic and infantile. 
Initially, we couldn't do it without defending ourselves or getting angry. Gradually, we learned and grew. I can remember the week Jerry and I actually did successfully incarnate with one another. After eight years of rapid-fire machine-gun communication, where we finished each other's sentences, we gazed at each other in astonishment. Never had we felt so loved and valued by one another. He would say it saved his marriage. Reflective listening saved his marriage. And I think this principle is huge. And actually, this is not a this is not a unbiblical principle. This is a biblical principle. Okay? Just just thinking about some of the Bible verses that talk about listening in the Bible. We've got James 1, we all know that one. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. All those things that he's talking about here in reflective listening. Not getting defensive, not getting angry, reflecting back on what they said. And um, that's James 1. Proverbs 18 says, It is the fool who takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. It's the fool who takes no pleasure in understanding, but only wanting to express his opinion. And verse 13 says, He gives an answer before he even hears. He's quick to speak. He wants to get his opinion across. And he goes on to look at three techniques that we're going to just have a look at on incarnational listening techniques. And I, this is where I'm sort of struggling with the preach. We're, we're looking at some techniques here. And I'm trying to, to bring you the biblical understanding. This is totally biblical. It's not something we do regularly. I'm hoping that the impact he's seen in his church will be the same as the impact we see in ours. Okay, so please listen and let's try and learn together how we can become better listeners. So, he starts, I'm just going to read this out. He starts by looking at how to begin. What does it mean to begin with reflective incarnational listening? And he says, as the speaker, so when you're the speaker, he says, speak using I statements rather than you statements. In other words, talk about your own thoughts, feelings, and desires. Um, and this is so important when you're expressing something. Because actually, if we start using the you, it starts to become accusationary. Have you noticed that? You start to accuse the person, the other person's defenses automatically go up. And so when you're bringing a problem, it's far better you know, for your, for your husband or wife even with your children, to start to talk about it from the I phrase. Start to talk about your feelings, your emotions. I'm struggling in this area. You'll find that the person listening is far more easy to understand it, doesn't get all the defences up, and is able to respond better. He says, keep your statements brief. Stop to let the other person paraphrase what you've said. I remember meeting with a guy in Leeds quite regularly, and um, I, I would say, from an Asperger's level, he was he was he was quite far on the scale. But I found a problem when I met with him, and I talked with him, and I regularly met with him and discipled him. Is he would go away? We had this meeting, we talked things through. He's been asking me for advice, giving him some advice, and he would go away, and he totally picked up 
some advice that I hadn't given. And I'd hear from somebody else that I had said, do this. I just kept happening and I thought, this is a problem. I'm trying to be very clear and yet this guy is hearing something else. And so as the speaker, the speaker, I had to get him to start to reflect on what I'd said. So I had to say to this guy, can you tell me what I've just said there? Can you reflect back? What have you heard me say? Okay? And you might be in situations in your workplace, in your families, in your marriages, where this is a problem. You feel like everything you're saying is, is not being heard. There's a lack of communication going on. And so it'll be helpful for you to ask, what have you heard me say? Can you reflect back? These are just helpful. He says, include feelings in your statements. It's so important. We're obviously talking about emotions. We're not robotic, okay? Actually, we need to express our emotions and our feelings about how we're feeling. Not just talking about the situation, but talking about how that situation makes us feel. Okay? He says, be honest, clear, direct, and respectful. As the listener, he says this, give the speaker your full attention. Now, these are obvious things that we know about, but actually when we reflect on our own listening techniques, how we're doing in this area, it's good. So I looked at it and thought, have I been doing this? Don't be thinking about your rebuttal. And I, I know for myself, there's time somebody started down the line and I'm already thinking about my response. I think I know where they're going. And I've started thinking, okay, I know, I know how to answer this one. I've got the story here I can reflect on. He says, step into the speaker's shoes. Feel what they're feeling when they, and then get back out. Just try and step into that life. Just as Martin Luther wrote that letter to help people to understand what it was like to be a black American. You need to try as you speak to people. And this is going to be from all next of us. As we grow as a church, as we see more and more families come in, we've got to try and understand people's backgrounds. Got to understand where they're coming from. So all the time we're trying to understand and feel what they've been through. Avoid judging or interrupting. It's dead simple to hear it, but actually, in reality, it's so difficult to do. Isn't it? Reflect back as accurately as you can what you heard them say. When you're done, sorry, when you think they are done, ask, is there more? And finally, when they're done, ask them, of everything you've shared, what's the most important thing you want me to remember? Great question at the end there. What's the one thing you want me to come away and remember? Often in a preach we say, if you're going to hear one thing today, this is the one thing I want you to go away with. Okay? These are just really helpful things to help us. Secondly then, validation. Out validating somebody. And he uses phrases like, I can understand why you feel that way. And this isn't the same as approval. It's not approving of everything that somebody says. It's simply acknowledging that their statement, their makes sense of their circumstances, of their time in life, of their at. And so it might be considering your circumstances or your experiences, that makes sense. Or I can see how you'd see it that way. These are helpful phrases to try and 
understand. He talks about a lady in the church called Josephine who had stopped coming to church. And she turns up after three months of not being there. And she speaks to him and she says, basically, I felt rejection. And he was like, wow, what have I done? And she said, you, you never hugged me after the meetings as you did the other women. That was what this lady came to him as the church leader to say. That's why she stopped coming to church. And he obviously had the opportunity to say, that's just ridiculous, Josephine. I, this hasn't even entered my mind. But actually, instead of just saying, come on, come on what's going on here? Validated, he said, you know, she's bringing criticism to him. And so defense, he wants to be, def- you know, all the defenses are going to be up. Hold on, I feel totally justified. Actually, he hasn't done anything wrong. But he validates her. And he says, okay, from your perspective, I can see how you might feel that way. From your perspective, I can see how you might feel that way. He's not approving of this, actually. But he's trying to validate her objection. Okay? And um, it's so important. It takes a lot of humility, actually, to do that. Because when we feel like we're right, when we feel like we haven't been in the wrong, we want to share it with everyone. We want to use it as our case against someone. But he validates. And um, I was watching some TED Talks on listening as a result of, of, list, of, of doing this preach. And I read the story of a, a lady who is called Ronnie Polinsky. And she was a um, journalist. And she wrote an article in the paper about um, mothers who had lost their children during gang warfare. And um, amazing story that got loads of good press. There was lots of responses coming in about this mother who she'd lost two children. And this mother had said, look, I've still got all this maternal love to give. And so she decided to join the, I think it's the sister firm in, in America, where you spend time with underprivileged kids or kids with no parents. And... Um, and these are kids who have nobody else to love them. All the responses she got back were, were just super positive. And then she, she was out of the office and she got this phone call and she got this message, which was, um, was very harsh. It was from a lady who left her number and said, I can't believe this article. I think it's a disgrace. You need to call me. And so she decided to call this lady back. She thought going to give her all guns blazing. Here I am doing a, a good story in the paper, a good news story, and this lady's dissing me. She's the only one. So she rings her up, and this, she finds out this lady has also lost a child. That story's in the paper, and yet the story of her son is not in the paper. And she stops while she's on the phone, and she just takes a step back, and she tries to put herself in her shoes. And she starts by saying... Can I just start by saying, I am so sorry about your loss. Tell me about your son. Tell me who he was. And all that anger that this lady has on the phone, all this bitterness, all this rage, dissolves instantly as this lady listens and loves and validates her response. Even though the response is probably a wrong response, she validates it and you see that when she's given love, 
when she's listened to, it changes her. Thirdly then, it's exploring. And it's about using phrases like, tell me more, help me to understand what you're talking about here. And this is the opportunity to, to use follow-up questions. And I want to say it's tough, you know. He gives us an example of a life group. In a life group, somebody comes to you at the end and says, do you know what, I didn't get anything out of that. It happens, happens when you preach. Someone comes up, I didn't get anything out of today's preach. Sorry, that was terrible. And everything in you is like, right, come on, come on, let's have you, you know. Defences are up, and you want to take them on. And actually, that is obviously the wrong response to have. Even though you're feeling it inside, it's the wrong response. And he suggests that actually it's, it's, it's that time there where we can explore, okay? And we can ask those questions. Tell me what made it an unfruitful evening for you at Life Group, okay? Um, and I'll talk about this from a biblical perspective. Proverbs 20 says, The purpose in a man's heart is deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. He will draw that. He will explore. Okay? This is a totally biblical principle. It's about drawing out what's going on in somebody. Those things that maybe they can't even understand. You're trying to draw it out. And I was thinking about this. I love the leadership team that we have. Freedom Church. Matt is brilliant at this. Okay? You can't sit down with Matt and have a conversation without drawing out what's going on in someone's heart. And so this is this first concept of listening, okay? And he goes on to talk about this second thing, which is much smaller. There's not so many points to it. He talks about holding on to ourselves in this situation. So as Jesus came, he made himself human. He put on skin. He engaged and incarnated himself into our world. Where to do that? But at the same time, he remained fully God. He knew who he was. He stood by his convictions, okay? And we're called to do the same. And the biggest challenge that we face as we incarnate ourselves into other people's worlds, as we try to understand, as we step inside, is not losing ourselves in the process. Okay? When we enter other people's worlds. And um, I was thinking about this. There are crazy, I was thinking about method acting. Okay? Um, most of you will know what that is. Essentially, when you're playing a role, you... You go and you get really involved in that role so that when you're acting it, you've actually been there. Okay? And it's about immersing yourself into this role so much that you become it. And um, there are some crazy examples of method acting. Robert De Niro, taxi driver here, he actually set up his own taxi rank before he did this film. And for three months, he drove his own taxi around New York just so he could immerse himself in trying to understand what it's like to be a taxi driver. And um, there's loads of examples. Too far. There was one guy who was doing a film on football hooliganism, and he decided to go out with the hooligan and do it essentially. And so he got involved in bare knuckle fighting. There was knives and he got he got stabbed while experiencing this, all because he wanted to get involved in the role, understand what it was like. And I think we just have to take a step back and say, we want to understand people, but we also need to know when to stand firm, okay? And where our line lies, who we are in Christ and as the church, okay? 
Um, we need to be able to connect, but we also need to know where our gift of limits goes. Okay, and um, we don't want to lose our saltiness, do we? As we enter into people's worlds, we want to bring light into the darkness. We don't want to get dimmer and dimmer. Actually, that's not what we've been called to do. And um, the problem is, when we look at these two things, incarnating, and we look at standing firm, and standing firm is essentially knowing where you lie. It's, a, it's about drawing in the sand and in that line, I'm clear on this, and this is where I stand. The problem is, if we're only good at incarnational listening, so those three things that we looked at before, if you're good at putting yourself into other people's shoes and incarnating yourself, then... Do you know, you have the ability to come across as really warm. But without the ability to stand your own ground, you'll actually come across as weak. Weak in standing firm. And just following, the Bible talks, following every wind of doctrine. Well, following what every person's doing because you want to engage so much in the world. And you become part of the world and in the world and you've lost sight of who you actually are. And so you come across as weak. But if you only have this second part of knowing how to be clear and stand and firm, then the difficulty is you come across very clear, but you've lost all that warmth. You've lost that ability. You become aloof to people. No longer do they want to come and express their heart and their feelings and their emotions to you because they see you as cold. And so what we're looking for here, the key is that we model both of these values together. That we are warm, inviting, (coughs) vulnerable, and yet we are clear. We know where we stand. We can bring God into people's lives and situations. And this requires just great. Okay? And he gives a few examples here of what it's like for people um, to stand firm. And I think this is helpful to understand when we're engaging people, what does it mean to stand firm? He gives an example here. I'm just going to read one of them. Donna and Alison. He says, There's two women in our church who were friends recognized there was tension in their relationship. Donna was upset with Alison. Whenever she asked Alison to do something, she always seemed to turn her down. But when Alison suggested an activity, Donna was always willing and available. Finally, annoyed, frustrated, and angry, Donna confronted Alison. Alison, however, had slowly been learning to hold on to herself. In the past, she would have always gone out with Donna because of guilt. She would have felt like a bad person for saying no. And now she was respecting herself enough to realize that she had a choice to say yes or no. She acknowledged she was introverted and not able to be with people as much as Donna, a high extrovert. What then did she do? First, she listened emphatically to Donna's disappointment, sadness, and anger without reacting or defending herself. After Donna felt heard, Alison, holding on to herself, honored her feelings and desires, saying, Alison, I very much appreciate you as a friend. I enjoy spending time with you. I just need the freedom to say no. Let's say Donna did not respond favorably. If Alison then loses herself and begins to go out with Donna all the time, she will probably grow resentful and the relationship may end anyway. Loving herself and Donna well requires Alison to do the hard work of holding herself. That's just one example of what it means to hold on to yourself, even though we're trying to... 
when we look at the Gospels and we see Jesus, we actually see two very, um, we see these occasions all the time. We see on the one hand him being praised and followed by many. His warmth, his ability to connect with people, his care. And then the next moment we see him being clear. Him explaining and crowds turning against him. So much so that he put his own life at risk. And he had to get out of situations. He had to walk away. And so I want to say mastering these two things is not easy. And... But it's so important for us as the church. If we want to love Liverpool, if we want to learn to love them, we need to learn to listen, and yet we need to stand firm in our identity as sons and daughters of Christ. Are you with me? Yeah. I just wanted to end by reading one passage from Philippians. And it's talking about Jesus. It says, He who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We have the beauty of God entering our world, putting on skin, coming into our lives, our situations, which are complex, but he loved us. He listened and he acted.